So we're, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. I've never done that in 15 years of, of uh, ministry in, in church, probably because I'm scared of them, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Old Testament, you know, it's like scary. Let's just read about Jesus. But uh, honestly, uh, it's been great to study it. And even as we looked at last week, the, the Ten Commandments, they, they carry the same heart of God as the whole New Testament. You can see the beauty of of God's word from beginning to end, it all really boils down to relationship. And that's what we saw last week, and, and so I'm not going to repeat the whole message for you. I know you were excited for me to just do a long repeat, but uh, it's on there. It's on the, it's on the website if you want to pick it up, but just a very quick nugget of framework, because it is very important to go into the Ten Commandments and be asking the question and, and having a proper context and framework of what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Because there is a danger. If you read them as laws and things to do that you have to do to earn God's love, you're up a creek in a bad direction. And, and that's honestly part of how they're intimidating. And, and, you know, you get in the Old Testament where there's lots of just different laws and statutes and it can, if you aren't keeping very aware of the context and kind of the, the relational development that God has with his people, it's very easy to see these laws and statutes and, and commands as the things we have to do to be good enough to earn God's love. But that is absolutely not how the commandments are introduced. They were introduced to a people that God had already clearly loved and, and so, back up a tiny bit in the context, this is the commandments were given in, in the wilderness of Sinai, but the most important thing to remember is this is post-Exodus, this is post-Egypt. So if you want to use some just simple language, the people of Israel had already clearly received the message from God that God loves you, God has chosen you, God called you. God has created a covenant, which just means relationship with you. God saved you. God forgave you. Passover. God provided for you. God protected you. God is mighty on your behalf. God is a warrior on your behalf. God speaks to you out of the cloud. God is present with you. God has made incredible promises about your future. Is this New Testament? Is this Old Testament? This is really good, right? And after all of that, now God says, here are some aspects of what I'm calling you to do, laws, statutes, commands, that are a response to me. So God has initiated relationship in many, many different ways. A grace-based relationship, meaning they didn't ask for it, they didn't deserve it. It was, that, it was that agape love that just overflows like it does for all of humanity from eternity past. As Ephesians 1.5 says, in love he predestined the people. It's just that agape fountain that overflows with undeserved goodness. And the people of Israel are the example of that. That is meant to go out to all the nations of the earth to see who is this kind of God that loves in this way. And so by the time we get to the commandments, it is not 
the starting place. And that's what we've just got to know. The commandments are never the starting place. That's where lots of world religions gets, get, very, get God's nature very dangerously wrong. And even in the Christian church, it can seep in. Anytime we think we are doing things, the starting place is us doing things that somehow earns our identity or earns approval or earns forgiveness or earns love. We're not living in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's grace first. We love because he first loved us. And that's all over the Old Testament. It's the same relational covenant. And so any commands we see here are the response of simply how do we stay close to God? And those commands remain today. It's the, the, the commands carry the, the nature, the, the, the character of God. So if we want to stay close to him, every healthy relationship has good boundaries, has clear ways to keep in fellowship, to keep that intimacy close. So we finished up last week saying, we want to be like the psalmist who declares in 139, 35, lead me in your paths, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. We want to associate God's commands with that word delight. We delight in them because we know they're for our good. We know God has our best in mind. We know, as he said, I set before you life and death blessing and curse, and to walk with me is the abundant life. Jesus said the exact same thing when there's the two paths. There's one that's wide, but what does it lead to? Destruction. God just wants to keep us from destruction. He wants to keep us close to him, walking with him in the abundant life. And so we want to get to that place in our hearts where we say, whatever your commands are, God, I want to obey them. I delight to obey in them because I know you're good, and I know you have only what's best for me in mind. And so that's where we finished last week, saying we want to delight in God's commands because we know it brings us alive in God and it brings glory to God. So I want to drill down a little bit more into this purpose of the commandments, the nature, the character of God expressed in them, and then we're going to get to the first two commandments today. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in verses 1 through 6, what we're seeing in here is just even more specific, the purpose of the commands that God gives. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord God, your, the Lord your God commanded me to teach you so that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord, revere the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Blessed is the implicit there. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's the picture of the blessed life as we walk with God and follow his and obey his commands. And here is the commandment. I want you to notice in verse 1, it's singular. It's not, here's all the commandments. Here is the commandment, which is a summary of all of the commandments. It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. So this sequentially here. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes after Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we see the Ten Commandments. So it's like you get all these laws, like 600 and something, something, and then you get the Ten Commandments, and then you get the One Commandment. It's like the Jesus' Russian you know, nesting dolls of commandments. You know, they all boil down to the same heart. And here is the commandment, which is important to see. This is a summary of what you've just heard in the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the many, many hundreds of commandments. And so we're really drilling down to the heart of what are the commandments all about in the commandment, which not coincidentally, Jesus repeats this phrase we're about to see and literally says, this is the greatest commandment that is a summary of all of the law and the prophets. So we're in some deep gold territory of the Bible right now. Here it is. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be all on your heart. So Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. If we see the context and the flow of Deuteronomy and Exodus through Deuteronomy, we can see that this is the, the boiled down golden territory of what the commandments, all of them in all of the law and the prophets are all about. And what is it? Love God with all your heart, soul, and might. So if we remember the context of where the commandments are given, how is it all boiled down? It's very quite simple. It's in summary, God loves you. And that's a very big summary. God has initiated with you all those things we talk about. He chose, he made promises, he provided, he protected, he saved, healed, redeemed, restored, all these incredible things. God initiates God loves you and his number one only major request that what you would do is love him back. God loves you, love him back. There's a story of the Bible. God loves you, love him back. It's relationship. It's all about relationship. God is doing many, many things at all times to convince you and to show you of his love, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, that he wants to be in relationship with you. And all he's asking is, love him back. Jesus said the same thing. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Love him. God loves you. Love him back. In other words... The big picture, if you're following in the lift notes, the big picture of God's word, the big picture from start to finish, but even as we get into these Ten Commandments, the message is this. God loves you, love God back. Obeying the commands are our love response to God. They are our love response to God. I think it was, was my brother Chris I think he coined the phrase or stole it from somebody who didn't quote him, so I'm giving it to Chris. So what did he say a few years ago? That obedience is God's love language. I like that. That's a good one. That's straight out of Jesus and whoever else he stole it from. Good job. I like it. But that's true. That's what you're seeing in the commandments. There's a call to obey, but it's out of love. It's just love the Lord your God. If you love him, you're going to want to obey him. With that in mind, now let's, let's get into the first two commandments. So if, if the context of the commandments is this, that God loves you, love him back, 
What does it look like to love God back? And not coincidentally, the first two commandments are actually really good practical application of what it looks like to put God first, to love God back, to obey God by loving him back. So let's see it. Deuteronomy 5, 7. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. Interesting. The first but not greatest. So it's like it fits right in there. The greatest is love God back, and the first is really practical application. How do you love God back? Put God first in everything. That's how you show your love to God. Put him first. And this really becomes the key question for life as a follower of God in regards to obedience. A question that should be be before us regularly is what does it look like in our lives to put God first? It's the first commandment. Shall have no other gods before me. That word before, is, it's, it's kind of the picture. You see, it's the prioritization. Nothing else is more valuable. It's God is on top, clearly. The most valuable treasure in your life. And so as we walk through life, we ask those questions. What, is it, what does it look like? And this is the discipleship's journey. That's where the commands come in. They're not to earn God's favor and his love and his forgiveness and your identity, your sonship, your daughtership. You've already got it in Christ. So now it's about how, what does it look like in my life to walk with him, to stay close with him, to preserve that relationship, to protect that relationship, to deepen that relationship. It's a, it's, this is the discipleship journey. We obey his commands so that we can walk closer with him. So we can grow in that sanctification journey, as people call it where we consecrate our lives, we give them as a holy offering to God, and so we look around as disciples, we're learning, we're growing with that question, how do I put God first? This first commandment, this is a lifelong journey. What does it look like to put God first? And you can just fill in the blank, as we should, different areas of life. What does it look to, like to put God first in your parenting? What does it look like to put God first in your friendships? If you're married, what does it look like to be married but to have God in the center and first? What is that? I mean, because you take like any love song and they're basically idolatry. It's the, the, the relationship is, I mean, it's, it's very interesting how a lot of love songs could be sung about God. Because it's, there's such a dependence, like, I'll die without you. You know, like all these kind of things. Uh, no, <laughs> like, that's not healthy. Only God's meant to fill that place. So what does it look like to have a healthy marriage with God first, though? What does it look like to put God first with your time? Woo, man, that's a big one in our world today. There's so many different things that are vying for our time, our attention. What does it look like to put God first in your attentiveness to where you've got the the Holy Spirit radar on. You've got, I want to commune with God and be attentive to his spirit. Because how many of you guys can feel that our world does, does not help you in that area? Right now, everything, there are increasing distractions moment by moment. You can live a, a, a schizophrenic life 
That's the direction our culture is going where you're never in one place for more than 30 seconds because you got so many notifications and distractions and, 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 and updates and whatever that may be. And some of it might be fine. Or some of it may keep you from putting God first by just being present and available to commune with him. What does it look like to put God first in your work setting? That no matter what work setting you're in, whether you love it or hate it, there is an opportunity to put God first and to believe that you can see breakthrough. You can see the kingdom advance in you and through you. Let God reign in and through your workplace. That's a promise from Scripture, and we don't want to limit God and say, no, he can't, he can't handle this situation. What does it look like to put God first with your hopes and your dreams? Or you give those over to the Lord and say, God, I want to live for the healthy hopes and dreams that you've wired me for, but I'm giving them to you. If they need to die for a season, if they need to be purified, I want you to be first in my hopes and dreams. Or right along those lines, your gifts, your passions. We see lots of people out in the world with great gifts and great passions, but if it's not consecrated to God, whew, it, can, it can be a work used for the enemy. How do we give our minds to the Lord? How do we give the giftedness he's given us to the Lord so he's first, so that he, his kingdom is advanced in everything we do? That's really what that first commandment's all about. So there's a thousand and one ways to apply this, and that's where... The community is great. This is where you process things together. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in as you're walking throughout your day and, and you bring that healthy challenge. Let the Holy Spirit challenge you. What does it look like to, to put God first in this area? And whether it's a new thing and you just feel like there's all this revelation God gives you of like, wow, I never even knew this was possible, or whether it's just a, a deepening nuance of God may be already first in your marriage, but here's that next layer. Or God may have done some amazing things in your work setting, but here's that next step I'm calling you to take to put me first, whatever it may be. And the second commandment is really just an application of the first, a present day for them in their context, a very real present day application of how to put God first. So let's read that one. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the connection between love and obedience again. So we got to remember here the world in which the, the Jews lived at the time. There was, it was full of carved images. They were everything. They were even currency. They were big business. But there was either, you know, there was a belief that there was many gods, little, little G gods, you might say, for many different things. So you had carved images out of wood or stone. Most of you guys already know that. You know that it would be to the god of the harvest or the god of fertility or the god of vengeance when you'd been wronged or the god of the... You know, the heavens of the sun and the moon, the God of the rivers, all these things that, you know, when Yahweh comes along, he says, no, I'm God of all of it. <laughs> it's mine. It's all mine. None of the, enough of this little G stuff where you're dependent on all these little carved images and stuff. No, I'm the God of it all. 
That, that's a, that is a worldview change. It is a massive declaration for the peoples of that time to have one God that, that is originally emerging out of this little you know, tribe of Jews and their claim is, no, he's not a little G Yahweh that does this and this for us. No, he is God of all of it. And that's the claim here that God is making, which is a massive deal for this context. Saying, I don't want you depending on those little G gods anymore for anything. Throw them all away. Get rid of them. They're trash. I am that I am. I am your everything. And, you know, we kind of look at that and scoff, like, how, how silly is that? You know, how silly, like, people would carve a little wooden thing or a little rock and they would put their hope in it and, you know, and that's, that's where we, you know, we got to be careful because we still have many opportunities to bow down. We still have many opportunities to serve those little G-gods. You know, the bow down phrase in here is, what has your reverence? What has your fear? What has your awe? The serve is more of that, what has your hope? What has your trust? What are you looking through to come through when you need it, that provision of any kind? And so, oh my goodness, do we have opportunities in our world to bow down, to put our hope and our trust? Of course. Could be anything. And that's part of the question for us to try to apply it today is what in our world, where are we tempted to make those little G-gods out of anything and everything? We can bow down to the altar of money, obviously, power, sex, those are probably some major big three temptations in our world that will always be there because they replace God in very specific and distinct ways. So they are that little G that's constantly knocking on the door. But you can also just challenge yourselves to say, what about, is there a little G? You just look out of the culture and what are those things that really have captured people's hope, captured people's fear, captured people's attention? There's a good chance there's a little G in there somewhere. Without prescribing what it looks like, I'm saying I guarantee there's a little G nature in that cell phone in your pocket. There's a little G temptation in some fashion. What about the news cycle? People have been glued to that as if Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone by, by every word that proceeds from the lips of the news anchor. Really, though, seriously, how much hope have people put there? How much fear have people put there? How much awe and reverence? How much have people let that dictate their worldview? That's bow down. It's exactly what it is. The headlines in our head are supposed to be God's word, not the enemy's work. That's a little G temptation, though, that we face every day. Which one are we going to believe? Are we opening the day and filling our heads so that our headlines are the promises of who God is and God's word? That's putting God first over no matter what the enemy is doing and saying in the world. What about the type of entertainment we consume or the amount of it? Again, without prescribing, I'm just, this is real life. We all, we're going to get tempted. Those are the little G's that we face every day. What does it look like to put God first? Again, not because we're trying to get a list of things to do, but because God knows what's best for our soul, and he wants us to walk close with him. He knows what's going to bring us joy. He wants us to delight in walking with him and give him glory. So with great delight, we say no to the little G's. 
With delight, we say no to those little G's that tempt us because we know we have the fountain of living water, the bread of life, who wants to commune with us as we obey his commands. One little phrase in there that's very interesting, God is a jealous God. We think that in a negative way, but it's absolutely not. It's very simply a, a, an expression of deep affection and love. I mean, it's the reason why God at times in the people of Israel says when they go about their own ways, chasing those little G's, worshiping other gods, God describes it as whoring after them. That's like the deepest relational intimacy language of a husband and wife, and God's describing that because his people are his bride, and when his bride is unfaithful, it's so personal to God, uh, so personal a break of the covenant relationship that he describes it as whoring. I mean, this is, this is wow kind of language. So it's rough. It's like, whoa, what's, what's behind it? It's the absolute relational intimacy that you are made for with God, that God's people are made for with him. And so when he says, I'm jealous, that's, that's like a healthy jealousy that a husband would have. And so he goes on to, to say, I'm a jealous God. But think about it this way. If God wasn't jealous for our love, for our affection, for us to love him back, and thus he didn't command us to put him first, to love him above all else, he would implicitly be commanding us to commit idolatry, to love and, and worship false gods. You see that? He would be commanding us to worship and love the very things that will destroy our souls and dishonor him. He deserves the glory and we're made for nothing less than the best, which is him. So it's only right for him to be jealous, to be honest and say, this matters. Because if I tell you to love anything less than me, that's idolatry. It'll destroy your soul. I love you too much to not care about what you worship. So fast forward here to the time of Jesus, and he really captures the essence of the first and second, second commandments. He echoes them beautifully. He, there is complete alignment between Jesus and the, the message of God's relational interaction with, with his people in the Old Testament, the covenant relationship. Although he says, I'm making a new one and it's even better, which is true. But he affirms that heart of God here in Matthew 6, 24, where he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he's talking about a specific aspect of life, God and money. That's one of those things where we all have the challenge to put God first. And what does that look like? And that's what Matthew 6 is all about, where he's talking about the provision and how we all get so worried at times about, are we going to be provided for? And where's the next day's provision coming from? And are we going to have bread? Are we going to have food? Are we going to have clothes? These are the normal human wrestlings of where is my provision coming from. That's why there was so many little G's that were grabbed onto. Well, hopefully if I bow down and serve this little G right, then I'm going to get the harvest. I'm going to get the fruit. I'm going to get the clothes. And that's where Jesus is affirming that same exact message is, no, get rid of all those. I'm all of it. I am God, your provider. In fact, he goes on to say, it's your father's good pleasure to give you his whole kingdom. And so he's again wanting to teach us 
to put him first by trusting that he will provide. So that's a specific context about money, but the bigger picture is Jesus is affirming those first two commandments, saying it's, it's love and devotion versus hating and despising, saying there's not room at the top. There's not room at the top of the hierarchy in your heart for, for two loves, for two affections, for two devotions. I mean, that is the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. God is worthy and worth being on top, no question. And so that's part of our wrestling in life is what does it look like to put God on top in every way and not live with a divided heart where we have divided affections, divided devotions. So I want to take us now into kind of some application here of how do we live like that? How do we live and, in a way that is growing in loving and serving God alone? Where we have but one master of our heart, where we have but one king, one devotion, one love. And I do want to take us into the, the new covenant here and, and encourage us to ponder and meditate on a phrase, Christ is our mediator. How do we live into this reality of loving and serving God alone and having no other masters? The first and second commandment. We take refuge in the truth that Christ is our mediator. I really want to get to the third one here, but I'm going to hit two things real quick that root us in the appropriate relationship that we have with God. So the first one comes out of Colossians 1, 21 and 22, just the basic gospel. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. So the key things to see there are Christ is our perfection. He is our righteousness. And this is past tense. He has reconciled you. It's done. God sees it as already done. Your identity is secure. You are forgiven. It is not earned. Christ as our mediator says you are secure in him. It's done. I mean, listen to that language. This is one of my favorite passages where he says, present you holy without blemish, free from accusation. So you're holy in God's sight, Perfect, that's without blemish, it goes on. Without blemish, that, that stain of sin is washed away. And without accusation, I love that one, because the enemy, the father of lies, is the accuser of the brethren, right? So he tries to stand before God and point out your faults. And God sees you in Christ and says, I don't even hear those accusations. So if the enemy isn't even strong enough to get accusations before the throne of God on your behalf, neither are you, so stop it. Stop accusing yourself of being unworthy of God's love. In Christ, God doesn't even hear those accusations. You're wasting your breath. You're just empowering the enemy and telling yourself lies, which is dangerous and powerful in the wrong direction. But God's word says, I don't even hear them. So you are secure in your identity in Christ as our mediator. And then a second aspect that's huge is Ephesians 4, 21 to 24. It gives us this great hope of being transformed. 
In accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, put on the new self created to be, listen to this, like God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is different from the first piece of good news, which we were talking about your position before God in Christ is as a beloved child of God, a beloved son or daughter, secure, blameless, without accusation because of what Christ has done. And now this one is talking about the new nature that is in you. You have been made new. And as you put that on by faith, your character is being recreated to be like God in true righteousness, in holiness. So that's not your position before God. That's your actual nature and character. In other words, you do not let any sin define you and say, I'm going to be stuck with this bad character and bad nature the rest of my life. That's not what the Bible says. It says you have God's nature, true righteousness and holiness that you get to put on in Christ and you are being made new in that. So there's nothing that your character can't overcome. There's nothing that can't be transformed about your character because it's being renewed in, what does it say? The likeness of God. <laughs> Some people call that the journey of sanctification. Your character is being transformed to be like Jesus, actually like Jesus, not just covered in the blood of Jesus, which amen is there, but actually like Jesus in here, where you desire holy things. That's good news. As Christ, our mediator, makes possible. Lastly, and this is one I want to, this is where the rubber hits the road on the daily basis. Christ is our mediator in a way that empowers us, empowers us to receive all good things in life as a gift from him and now a conduit of connection to him. So to boil it down, when Christ is our mediator, you have the power now increasingly to live life in gratitude and worship where everything becomes spiritual. Everything in life that's a good gift from God becomes a means of gratitude and worship, connection to him. Everything, increasingly, unless it's just pure evil and sin. And if it is, you, you just get rid of it. Hebrews talks about this incredible reality, how chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 describe this. And I apologize, I forgot to put the verse up there. But it describes how Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. He's like the high priest, the mediator of the covenant. And he is the new mediator, as it says directly in, what is that? Verse 6. The ministry Jesus has received is superior to the old covenant of which he is the mediator. So he is our mediator. And the context is it's talking about going into the Holy of Holies, right? Where the utmost of worship was done the beautiful presence of God and, and gratitude, sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise were brought. The worship of God, the communion with God's presence, the holy of holies, which we know now, what? What is it? It says God does not dwell in tabernacles made by human hands, but you are the temple. Your body is the temple. God dwells in us as a temple. 
But the picture is that Jesus went in as the eternal high priest, the one who was our mediator, the one who would take the sacrifices and make them holy, and that's what's key. Thanksgiving and praise. He would mediate them to God. And it was, of course, the, as I said, the, whole, the high priest had to keep doing it because they weren't truly holy. So Jesus does it once for all. And it's this picture of he's taking our lives and the activities that we do as thanks and praise, and he's mediating them so they all become worship to God. And, and so putting this practically, you can, you can take a look at anything in life, and you can see how it can be redefined. Almost everything in life that even could be used as an idol can be turned around and used as communion to God when Jesus is the mediator of it for us. He helps us redefine it. He helps us see it as a good gift from God or a conduit of worship to him. It Increasingly, Jesus mediates for us all of life and so that all of life increasingly can become worship to God, connection to God, thanksgiving to God. So just go back and plug in all those things, whether you got marriage or parenting or finances or work or your hopes and your dreams and your gifts and your passions. All of those things can be idols. Or all of those things can be received as good gifts from God that deepen our connection to God and increase our worship of God as Christ teaches us how to let him be the mediator that redefines them and he shows us how to receive him as good gifts. He shows us how to turn him into praise of God. And so increasingly through Christ as our mediator, we learn to live every aspect of life with God on the throne. With, and so instead of life getting smaller and smaller and more and more limited, which people think the commands do, really the first commandment is meant to challenge us to increasingly expand the reality of how much God wants to be involved in every single aspect of life where you get the pleasure and the joy, the privilege of learning how, as Christ teaches you, as he is your mediator there through the power of the Spirit, to live seeing every good gift in life as a gift from God. And every opportunity, everything we go through in life as an opportunity to praise God, to see God's goodness in it and turn it up to praise so that he is honored and glorified. And increasingly what's happening, you're just walking life in relationship with God. It's coming back to relationship. He loves you, you love him back. It's that simple. Let me give you a couple quick examples and we'll be done. Or kind of one example of learning to live with Christ as the mediator so that things get redefined and things that used to be idols are now worship. And so I'll just tell a story of, you know, a fun story of me looking like an idiot. So it's all, you know, it's good. It's always, always fun to share those things. So I'm going back to college. So um, I remember a season where I was, I think I was a sophomore year and, and I, was a, I was a believer and God was just starting to really do good things in my life. But I was talking with a mentor and, 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 and really feeling like, I just kind of like, I'm not encountering God like, like I want to or like others have or, or what I see in the scripture. And, and it's just, it's, I know there's more. And I remember, never forget, he said to me, Psalm, I think it's 37.4 or 34.7. I always forget it, but I know the Psalm. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And that was like a prophetic word for me because it just hit me so strong. It was like, that's exactly, it just took me on this rabbit trail of prayer with God of like, that's what I'm missing. I, I, I know I have so much more to encounter where my soul is hungry and thirsty to taste and see that you are good. And I, I know I have in ways, but it just seems to be so infrequent. I want it to be more than that once in a while church service. I want it to be more than those camp experiences. I want it to be more than that, you know, a couple times a year. It's like, it, it, that's not what's in the Bible. It's all over the place. And so that verse just was a beautiful word from the Lord to, to, to chew on and wrestle with and ponder. And so began to pray, like, what's, God, I, why is this not happening? How come I'm not tasting and seeing that you are good on a more regular basis? And it was super simple. The, the word was, because your heart is divided. You've kind of got one foot in and one foot out. You're trying to kind of trying to seek me and pursue me and go to church and, and you know, intervarsity youth group type stuff, and that's good, and you're serving here a bit, little there, but, but your heart's divided. As far as where you're seeking your joy, you've got a lot of other things going on that are you know, to use this language, that are, that are those little G idols. Your heart is divided. It's like, ooh, okay, well, I'll take, you know, this is good news. This is grace. I, I, you know, I didn't receive it as condemnation. I received it as anytime God wants to reveal things, it's because he wants to heal things. It's because he's got good news for us. He's got something better for us. And I was asking, and he was, he was showing. So I said, God, show me. And he showed that for me, I mean, everybody's got the various stuff that they might be struggling with at various times, but for me, he showed me the intentions of my heart behind many actions, although they looked good on the outside. The intentions were, I was living for my glory in lots of different ways. And if there's one thing that God does not want to compete with, it's his glory. <laughs> you try to be glory and, you know, you're living for your own glory. You're living to be God in your life. God's not going to seem very powerful and real because you've replaced him. So God showed me I was living for my glory in so many different things from, from everywhere, I mean, from the big to the little, everywhere from the leadership positions I had down to the clothes that I was wearing. In the leadership roles, I, I was in student government and had kind of strategically positioned myself as a sophomore to like, you know, have that political like, you know, leg up and I had all my plan and everything. I was going to run and be the, the student president of UCSD by my senior year and had made it into the executive cabinet by my sophomore year and was really nice to everybody. Everybody loved me and got this, you know, great position and everything. On the outside, it looked great. I mean, I'm just a kid serving. Like I'm a, you know, a future leader. Like I'm, you know, like moms love me. You know, it's like you're a good boy. And on the inside, God showed me, yeah, th those things are good, but you know the intentions of your heart. You just want to be president because it will bring you glory. It's like, ooh. Yes. And then he got to my wardrobe. And he called out my Hawaiian shirts. It's redemption, by the way. Also, that's the only moment. But he showed me the intention of my heart was very much the same. It was praise and glory. I just, whatever, went to the, wanted to go to the thrift store, find the coolest $2 Hawaiian shirt from 1970, 100% polyester, don't light a flame within 100 feet or I might explode kind of shirt. You know, but it was for praise and glory. My heart was clearly divided. I had two masters. So what did I do at the time? I just cut it all off, honestly. I got scared. And sometimes that's, that's sometimes, and I'm not saying there's a Holy Spirit says for everybody, for that time, I needed to cut it off. I needed to stop. So I quit my plans to run for president of the school. Didn't run next year, you know, fulfilled the little sophomore year thing, and then just stopped. Went on a missions trip. Didn't go, didn't intentionally stay out of leadership for several years. Stopped wearing Hawaiian shirts. 
It's horrible. <laughs> Repented of making all these idols. But I told God, hey, I, I, you're worth it. This isn't it. I know there's more. I want to taste and see that you are good. So he took me through a, like a two-year period of learning to encounter him without all that stuff. Just learning to enjoy him, to love him, to gaze as what does the psalmist say, to, to inquire in his temple. One thing I've asked for, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord so that to get away, almost like my, my, my time of kind of getting in the wilderness, which is all throughout the Bible as a good thing to kind of some purify some intentions in our hearts to say, I want to learn how to just encounter God. I want to learn how to commune with God. I want to learn how to love God and see his beauty, his majesty, learn how to be with him, learn how to hear the Holy Spirit, learn how to be filled up with joy without all that stuff. And so it was a two-year period. One of those years included a, a year in Costa Rica where I basically was almost lived by myself. I call it like my wife and I call it my little monk wilderness years because I was like basically just lived by myself for a year and read the Bible and wrote down promises of the Bible and, and just learned how to have my soul satisfied in God. And then he began to teach me how to add things back into my life. But here's the big difference. It's as good gifts from him for his glory with him as the mediator. Because for a while, I was like, okay, I'm gonna never going to touch a Hawaiian shirt again. I'm never going to touch leadership again. And so it took a couple years of God working in my heart and in the ways I was describing. And then he was saying like, hey, no, okay, it's time to, I made you to be a leader. Now, you didn't know how to use it at the beginning, but I made that for you. So he reaffirmed that he's given me certain gifts and passions and areas that, that lead to leadership roles. But the difference was this time he was mediating for me in my heart, in my mind, what it looks like and feels like to do it for his glory, not mine. And that's massively different. <laughs> and now I know how it feels. It feels massively different. I did not know how it felt before. But he's mediated that and continues to mediate that so that I cannot be afraid of being a leader. I cannot, I'm, not I'm not afraid of leadership positions anymore. It's like I'm just going to take any opportunity I had, but I just ran away and said, no way. But God said, no, if I've made you to do it, I want you to do it. You're going to be alive in this way, and I'm going I'm to use it to advance my kingdom. So now it's doing the same exact thing as before from the outside, but it's mediated through Christ. So it's what does it look like to do this for your glory? So sometimes I need to say no. Sometimes I need to say yes. Sometimes continue to show me, Lord, how this is for you, for not me. And it might be the same activity on the outside, but it's being mediated through Christ. And it's freedom now. Now, instead of life getting smaller because of the commands that say, don't do this and don't do that. No, it's life getting mediated through Christ, following God's commands, and life continues to now get bigger and bigger with more freedom, more passion. And then, you know, even Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> I got to put them back on. But now I honestly put them on, not for my glory anymore, but honestly, through Christ as the mediator for me in this area, I put them on, I wear them as an expression of my identity in Christ, which gives me the freedom to be childlike and playful and walk with a light and easy yoke. And I find that expressed through the Hawaiian church that I've loved since I was a kid. But it's completely different. I used to wear them to try to be cool. Now I wear them genuinely to put my heart in a posture of, today, Lord, I am putting on a light and easy yoke. At the end of the day, I'm just your beloved child. You do the heavy lifting in my life. And it feels good. It was, it was kind of funny. This week, I think it was on a Tuesday, 
I came home from work and I had a Hawaiian shirt on and uh, got out of the car, Tuesday or Wednesday, and got out of the car and there was one of the little neighborhood kids running around and, uh, and he just looked at me and he's like, he's like, oh, did you just get home from vacation? I was like, why? He's like, because your shirt. <laughs> it was just so cute. I was like, you know, brother, I try to just stay on vacation, <laughs> you know, like always on vacation. But in the sense of like, you know what I'm saying? Like for me, I'm telling you, it's, it's something that's special. It's spiritual. It's real. It's a way of mediating all of life, even down to the silly shirt I'm putting on through Christ. And I just want to give those little examples for me as ways that all of us can take in just for time's sake, I'm not giving you 10 more examples, but it's everything from the huge questions of what are your God-given gifts and passions and destiny and purpose in this world, big picture stuff, down to the tiniest little, what are you putting on to wear today? All of that can be candidates to be mediated through Christ, to, be, to put God first on the throne and then live life increasingly through Christ as our mediator in communion with God, where everything becomes worship. Everything we do becomes God's on the throne. God is first. And that's a lifelong journey. It's a process. But isn't it an amazing thing how those commands of God are not meant to limit us and make life smaller. They're meant to be this, the healthy boundaries that lead us into this wild freedom where increasingly in life, through Christ mediating, God is everywhere. And we can walk through life full of thanks Every good gift in life, you see it. It's just a, that cup of coffee in the morning and you're, and you're having a little quiet time outside with God. That's a gift from God and you're turning it up in God to praise. That hug that you have after service from that good friend that you missed this week, that's a gift from God. You're turning it up to praise. The breath in your lungs that you got this morning, your body that's, that's still beating, it's the chance you go to get to see your kids and your grandkids you know, do the things that they love to do. You, it starts to be mediated through Christ. Everything is praise. Everything is thanksgiving. God's on the throne of it all, and he's good, and everything is praise. And it's amazing how God set it up. When he's truly on the throne of our hearts, we get the joy, he gets the glory, and it works. Let's pray and ponder these things right now. Let's just give a quiet moment just between you and the Holy Spirit. And let's just ask this question, God, what are you wanting to highlight to me this morning? out of what has been said and, and really the dialing down into the truth of God's word, from God's word, Holy Spirit, what do you want to highlight to me this morning and how do you want me to respond to it? I believe God, God's got good news for all of us. So Holy Spirit, come speak to your beloved children, we ask. This should take a quiet minute. Singing.